Everybody is murderous in their attentions towards everybody else. I can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora podcast network where we discuss political science and popular culture. Hosted by Brock Roderman and Peter Sleeman. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the different types of democracy and how it's um, spread throughout the world, um, with reference to a whole bunch of cool different popular cultures and how they're expressed through that. But first, we have to say that this is our first podcast uh, that is part recorded as part of the uh, Agora podcast network which means we get to plug some guys podcasts and they will be plugging ours which is pretty cool so um i think the first one we want to do brock is the uh, history of alchemy yeah yeah it's a really cool one that's uh, presented by travis dow and pete coleman yeah and they look at how the history of science met the occult and developed the the science that used to be called alchemy is now called chemistry, and uh, they combine the ideas of historical fervor and endeavors with some sort of supernatural attempts at things like ever like immortality, artificial life, and the philosopher's stone. So they really make the history of chemistry pretty cool in that they look at what people were trying to achieve with chemistry and what they thought it could do for them. So take a listen to that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Another one that they do, uh, Peter Coleman and uh, Travis Dow do the Bohemican podcast, which is an amalgamation of Bohemian and American. So uh, Peter Coleman is actually an American in Prague at the moment. And uh, along with Travis Dow, they offer a slice of history, culture, and tradition from the middle of Europe. An often overlooked country, Bohemia has a riveting history that has often played a pivotal role in major global events. So it's an interesting take on um, the history of that area surrounding uh, Prague, which is currently part of the uh, Czech Republic. Um, but as I'm sure most of our listeners know, uh, you know what was Czechoslovakia uh, is a very interesting area. Um, and the other one, which is, uh, you know, again, slices into that, but is just hosted uh, by Travis Dow, is the history of Germany. Uh, which is a bit of a crazy uh, t- t- uh, thing to tackle uh, because the history of Germany is a long one. Um, Travis Dow decided to not take many shortcuts, but he started with the Neanderthals and Heidelbergensis hominids living and first discovered in Germany, but quickly moves past Celts and Germans in the Bronze Age and Iron Ages to the Romans and onwards up until, I think, right through to the modern Germans. So both of those guys have a, a really good understanding of uh, European history. So all of those um, podcasts by uh, Travis Dow and Pete Coleman sound like they could be super interesting. You guys should definitely have a listen. Especially if you're into history and anthropology, I think that would be a great show for you. Yeah, yeah. But Peter, I want to talk about why, what people do when they get together. So how do we govern ourselves? How do we govern society and the forms of governance that, and regime types that uh, have taken place in human history and specifically the democratic form? What was it? about human society and uh, and people that, that led us to want to lead ourselves and to govern ourselves? Why why did democracy come about? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know if I'm really qualified to answer it. <laughs> but what's interesting here is that 
like I think popular culture has kind of painted this picture now that democ and obviously I think it's because popular culture is dominated by the Americans. Democracy is this be all end all form of running of the system. It's natural to human beings. It's the pinnacle of evolution, if of political evolution. And especially if you've read anything by Francis Fukuyama, he actually categorically states that liberal democracy is the end of political history. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, political uh, democracy is a form of running human relations. Essentially, it's a, as we've stated before, these methods are a way of distributing resources throughout society. And the interesting thing is, is that human beings are not naturally democratic. We are a herd animal. Uh, we form hierarchies where we have often alpha males um, and alpha females. Um, and that's what we tend to do naturally. That's our instinctive response. Unfortunately, but should, yeah. But surely that 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 organization is designed to keep the the humanoid alive. It's designed to keep the human population alive. So it's all survival techniques built into those basic instinctual instinctual types of relations, where it, we we tend to be more autocratic, so that nobody disobeys the rules and we cut down the risk. Of being eaten by predators. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, these systems, these instinctual systems, are are evolutionarily designed into us. Um, they protect us as a species. But uh, the the reason, the way they work, is they work when we're in small bands. When you have a band of no more than 125 people, you need an alpha, um, whether that's male or female. I mean, human beings traditionally can be matriarchal or patriarchal, or, uh, yeah, instinctually. Um, but and with, then that patriarch. Uh, you know, re distributes resources um, according to what's best for that group. But once you get past that size of group, then you have bigger problems that need to be taken into account. But that means you have to start designing systems that no longer function on that small group level. And one of those methods is a democratic method, which is what we're discussing and when, today. When was the first time in history, was it, was it really in, in the Athenian classical Greece that we saw this for the first time? Look, as far as we know, yes. Uh, the first time that we saw uh, the democratic model was in ancient Greece. I mean, you know, like we can make the argument that perhaps there were aliens who visited us and Atlantis existed, <laughs> <laughs> but we don't, we don't have any records. So the, the first records we have of the democratic model is the, is the one that happened in ancient Greece. Athenian democracy is the one that's always spoken of. It kind of gets a lot of focus, but the democratic model existed in many um, ancient Greek city-states. Sparta was democratic to a certain extent, but with a different democratic model. A lot of ancient Greeks followed a form of democratic model. Obviously, the word democracy comes from ancient Greek. Demos meaning people and uh, krasi meaning to rule. So it's rule by the people. Um, and, you know, as Brock has said many times, it's rule by the people, of the people, and for the people. Uh, no, no, no. If you write that down, don't quote me. I wasn't the first one to say that. Uh, no, the first one to say that was Abraham Lincoln. Well done. Ah. Uh, so, but the ancient Greek, let's, let's jump to the ancient Greek because that's where we really have the first conceptualization of this model. Yes, it was the first um, and best recording of the practice of democracy. Yeah. Because you got an idea from the historical texts describing who classified as a citizen 
because the and that was essential because the the functioning of democracy relied on the participation of citizens. So we had to def- find a way to define who a citizen was, and of course, and in many ways it was it was very uh, discriminatory because it didn't allow women to be counted as citizens. Yeah, it didn't allow slaves to be counted as citizens, and even if you were the average Joe, you still couldn't participate as a citizen if you didn't have a significant amount of property or land, uh, and if your beard wasn't a certain length. Yeah. It they, can be they, they're quite that ridiculous. They qualified wisdom on the basis of beard length, um, which was crazy. But on the other hand, one of the things they did consider was that wisdom and knowledge was necessary in order to become a true citizen. So uh, only a male, um, a free male, who owned a certain amount of pro- property, I think over the age of 20 or 30, um, was able to become a citizen. So... It did require a certain amount of knowledge, but what made this interesting was that in um, the Agora, which was the place where they had these debates and discussions, every single citizen had not only the right, but the obligation to be part of discussions on specific you know, policies. So if, if Athens was going to go to war with another city-state, it had to be a majoritarian vote on the part of all citizens and each citizen had the right to speak in front of the Agora for or against the motion. And then once everybody had spoken, they would have a vote and the majority would pass in favor or against. Now, the one important principle to remember from this type of democracy is that it uh, it was classified as a direct form of democracy because the Athenians and the Greeks at large valued the principle of rationality so highly they believed that the collectivization of that rationality in reasoned argument would contribute to our highest state of being. Yeah. So everybody would be able to live better together if everybody contributed their perspective on the problem and argued for a certain principle. They didn't argue, they didn't want consensus. They didn't think that consensus was the end game. They just wanted, they appreciated the value of a multitude of perspectives so that the best argument could win. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, they, they instituted the majoritarian principle where the majority who voted for a particular motion would um, would see that motion come to light and therefore have deemed to be successful in ruling democratically. Yeah. And especially not just democratically, but also directly. Yeah. Because it, it garnered those perspectives from citizens themselves I d- as opposed to using representatives. Yeah, and that, that's important. I do know that the, the Greeks, especially in Athens, didn't really like... If uh, you know a vote came down to like fifty-one to forty-nine percent, uh, many yeah. of them would have di- would have found that distasteful. Although that would have yeah. passed, they did try and get a you know everybody to. Co- it was the 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 impact was based on your persuasion. You know how well you spoke. In fact, you know the term yes. orator comes from ancient Greek as well. This rhetoric, pe- politicians standing up and speaking their heart to people. And swaying their mind. So they liked it when they had, you know, the, a majoritarian vote that was more than like 75 or whatever percent. Um, yes, I must say, I must add, I must agree with you then, add that it's a while they focused on the majoritarian vote. They certainly didn't do away with consensus. They just held consensus up as an ideal. Yeah. They tried to work towards it, but they didn't consider it a failure if votes, if motions that passed were not voted for 100% of the citizens. Yeah. And you know what's a, like, I think something that's going to make uh, our listeners understand this is is this kind of process is a little bit hinted at in the movie 300 um so like uh, you remember in the movie where you see the meeting in uh, sparta um and they're yes. they're having the discussion about whether to go to war or not and 
oh, fuck, I can't remember her name, but the woman who plays Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. Uh, firstly, uh, yeah. I think the Spartans actually did allow women to speak, but she doesn't speak. She just gets pissed off. The only person... No, I don't... I don't think Spartans allowed women to speak, but because she was queen regent, because she was married to yes, you know, that's to right. The, yeah, that would have been she was to allowed hero. to speak for. She was allowed like um uh I don't know the the luxury. She was allowed the luxury of a public speech, yeah. um if she wanted to contribute her thoughts, but it was kind of um, frowned upon because they didn't want people, they didn't want the men in the in that senate. Uh, changing their opinion or, or obeying to her persuasion, and they just wanted to feel that they just wanted her to feel important. Yes, yeah. but the interesting thing is, is that um, I can't remember the character's name, but the bad guy in that he stands up and gives a speech, but nobody speaks against him. He almost acts as a representative for a specific point of view, which is not how that democratic system worked. He would have given his opinion. Somebody else would have stood up and stood against him, and that's how they would have reached an idea. So in the movie, you just see him stand up and everybody going like, oh, yes, that's right. No, it, did, it wouldn't have worked like that. He would have stood up, well, given his opinion. Somebody else would have stood up, given their opinion, and that's how you would have reached consensus. And in actual fact, well, the reason – well, sorry to cut you off, Brock, but the reason that in the, in the actual history, the reason that the Spartans didn't – they only sent 300 warriors to war – was not because the Spartans decided to not go to war. It was because at the time, the Spartan army was engaged in conflict with, I think, some Macedonian tribesmen to the north, and they only had 300. So Leonidas had to take the 300 they had while the Spartan city managed to get everybody else back. This whole like contention of him taking over the democracy didn't actually happen like that. That is, that is perfectly true. Um, but I'd like to hang on to the idea that one speaker could have the floor and not be rebutted against, because while that is uh, that does warp the perception our perception of this, how the Senate worked, um, there were I mean if we progress to like the Republic of Rome for example, where direct democracy was also practiced but to a lesser extent, we see that in the Senate um, obviously to account for everyone's uh, opinions and to give, allow enough time for everyone to speak. Things were trying to be cut short a lot of the time. Yeah. It can often take, you know, many weeks to settle debates. So you would have factionalism arising mm. and you would have representatives who garnered political support from other members of the Senate to allow them to speak on their behalf. Yes. And provided they made a coherent argument in that, that they agreed with in principle, you wouldn't have every citizen engaging with the debate. You would have representatives of the different factions engaging in that debate, not just to, well, we can, a dream about it being the lofty principle of uh, cutting down time or being pragmatic for for the sake of saving time, mm. but actually it was it had a lot to do with politicking that uh, people in the Senate, especially in the Roman Senate, were trying to garner support for their political uh, endeavors and ambition rather than actually trying to settle the debate. Yeah, I agree with you to a certain extent. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a really nice way to direct the conversation onwards. Um, and it's almost, you know, because in Rome, suddenly you see the first growth of representative democracy rather than direct democracy. Um, almost the first growth of what we would consider today to be political parties. Although I can feel Dr. Vormerantz, my political science lecturer, starting to get angry with me for even suggesting that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm even getting really angry with you for suggesting that. <laughs> But I think that what really sets it aside is also a logistical thing. So, for instance, in the Athenian Empire, which existed post 
um, the war with the Persians, which is depicted in 300. Um, the Athenians and the ancient Greeks, they controlled their colonies, but only the citizens of Athens were actually the political entities. You know, they controlled Persia, but no Persian was an actual citizen of the empire. The Romans were different because the Romans had what they called the Pax Romana, which was the idea that anybody who was a part of the Roman Empire was also a citizen. So, you know, there were Roman citizens in Jerusalem and Spain and even Britain, you know, when the, when the Rome still had its republic. But obviously you can't get all of those people into an agora in Rome, in their capital city. So how did they, how did they deal with that logistical issue? They elected representatives, usually governors. I mean, and this process was absolutely jam-packed full of corruption and problems. But just from a political science point of view, you see a system where now we solve the problem of, of our population is too big to actually have a meaningful discussion by electing representatives to our representative body so that they can discuss the issues at hand. And that way we can, we can continue and make decisions that will work for everybody. I, 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 I don't agree with you that much. I don't think it was a strict rep representative style of democracy, but I, there was definitely a recognizable decline in the, in the directness of the democracy. And many people rely on that description of the, of Roman republicanism to describe what is now being termed deliberative democracy, where the focus on is less on absolutely every citizen being allowed to participate, but rather that the citizens who do participate are a not uh, not exactly representatives; they're rather lay citizens. Um, but that they debate in a deliberative manner; that decisions are made deliberatively; that they are that they take into account rational argument, and that they account for multiple perspectives yeah. in that in that argument. Mm. So that becomes an important principle for democracy because we still use that today. Many people, still in modern representative democracies, find the principle of deliberation highly valuable in that you know, it does get, it does allow people to bring in, um, the best argument, bring the best arguments forward and allow the best arguments to influence policymaking. Especially in so Africa it, where they work on a, sometimes some governments work on more of a consensus model. Than, uh, than just a majoritarian model. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because it's important not to forget the, 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 the ideal of consensus, that although consensus is not required, it is certainly tried, it certainly is a goal, is to try to get everyone to agree on passing the, the motion the same way mm. or on failing the motion. Yeah. But, um, and but it, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a huge problem if that consensus is not reached. It's just that they try to get as close to it as possible. Yeah. Before we before we move on from ancient Rome, I'd like to give another movie example of how this democratic ideal has been romanticized, firstly by the Renaissance and then by America. So usually if you actually read your Roman history, Rome didn't do so well when the Senate was in charge. Rome actually had its glory days when it was ruled by an authoritarian dictator such as the Caesars. You know, Julius Caesar took over and you saw some of the greatest years in Roman history. So when you watch a movie like 300, uh, not 300, ugh, Gladiator, Gladiator. Marcus Aurelius is the emperor of Rome. Now, Marcus Aurelius was a famous philosopher. I mean, you go, go and read the, the Meditations, which is an amazing book. But he was an autocratic leader at the end of the day. There was, the Senate existed, but under his authority. Now, the, the kind of subplot to uh, Gladiator is this kind of recreation of the Senate 
nonsense. Like Marcus Aurelius was not concerned with re with allowing the Senate to take back the Roman Republic. Marcus Aurelius was very much in favor of himself being an autocratic leader, as was Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And it's and Tiberius. Yeah, Tiberius. It's very interesting that now, you know, we think of like the Ides of March. Uh, and like in that story, Brutus is the bad guy. He assassinates Julius Caesar. But if that story was happening today, Brutus would be the good guy. He's assassinating an autocratic leader in favor of recreating the Senate. But the reason that we know Brutus was the bad guy was because the Senate sucked at ruling Rome. Because, in fact, it wasn't a democracy to to a certain extent. It was more of an oligarchy. It was a bunch of old men in power who controlled the, the Republic. Uh, who controlled the empire. And to to get a good idea of this perspective of Brutus being the good guy, you should definitely watch the HBO series Rome. Uh, there they, they depict quite well the different factional allegiances within the Senate and between Julius Caesar as the emperor. Or um, what is it? What is that name that he gave himself? Um, I can't remember now. Um, between him and, and Brutus, uh, who is a, who was a strong supporter of the Senate, like you say, and he's not exa- he's not depicted as the as the, the traitor that um, that some other people, some other historians, would have you believe. Yeah. But going back to going back to Gladiator, I mean, it, you're dead right. Marcus Aurelius was not in favor of the Senate because the fa- Senate had failed, and he, contrary to the film. Had hand point hand picked his son Commodus to rule after him, and in fact there was a period of time where him and Commodus ruled together. Yeah, there was no historical patricide with um, Commodus murdering his father so that he could be emperor and uh, forsake the Senate of Rome. And Commodus was, was also uh, not completely... an incestuous asshole. He was just he was a as far as I understand he was a fairly good emperor. Yes, he was a fairly good emperor. Um, but I still love I still think Joaquin Phoenix is portrayal of him yeah, in Gladiator really cool. was some of the best it's acting. a good movie I mean absolutely yeah so let's move on from that deliberative democracy then to uh, the the Renaissance Republican states in in Italy during the Enlightenment yeah absolutely would you like to give the background to this or should I no you can go ahead so I think the one point the one thing I'd like to point out at this point is that for democracy to work it requires a certain amount of bureaucratic innovation so you need to have records of who your citizens are. You need to have, you know, ability to vote. There's a lot of paperwork that goes into democracy. So that's, I think that there can be an argument made for why we see democracy getting better as human beings technologically advance. Now, what happened in the Renaissance was obviously a rediscovery of ancient Roman and ancient Greek texts, which was great. I mean, it, it, it created a huge amount of technological innovation, Leonardo da Vinci, all that stuff. But the other thing it did is that it revitalized the idea of the republic. And we saw republics starting to spring up around Italy. So we had, I think the most famous one was the Florentine Republic, uh, led by the Medicis. Uh, we had the uh, Republic of Bologna. We had the Republic of this and that all over the place. Obviously, Rome at the time was led by the Catholic Church, so that was not a republic. Um, and obviously had a huge amount of struggles between these different groups. But what's interesting about this is it's because of the growth in record-keeping technology and record-keeping ideas that had kind of been taken not only from ancient Greece, but also from the Middle Eastern world, uh, where you know your Arabs had been using record-keeping uh, methods for a long time. They were able to run a much more efficient 
democracy. And for the first time in history, you start to see the idea of individual freedom becoming linked with democracy. So democracy is not just a way to rule now. Democracy is a way to give people their due as human beings who deserve freedom. And I, I don't know, I, I think that that is one of the most important things that come out of Renaissance democracy. That's true. But also with this record-keeping um, techniques that they were learning, they also found that many more people were becoming, uh, well, not many more, but certain individuals were becoming more proficient in political rule and becoming more knowledgeable of historical texts and were more and were better equipped to to rule their their states and were as such being appointed as as types of the first types of democratic representatives to govern their people and to speak for the people since they were kind of believed to have a good idea of what was needed by the people yeah um and it's not that so 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 people while citizens were for the first time uh conceived of as being free they were also being conceived of as subjects as democratic subjects yeah yeah that the that the government had a responsibility to protect those citizens would you say yes yeah and rep and by representing them and their ideas and i think what's also important here is that this took place at the same time that these republics became incredibly wealthy so banking becomes uh, you know, part of the society at this point. Technology becomes part of... We actually, you know, we talk about the Industrial Revolution happening in the 19th century, but this time was actually the seeds of the Industrial Revolution. Now, what that causes is... I mean, it's it's small compared to what we have today, but you see the growth of a middle class. Now, when you have a growth in the middle class, the middle class starts to demand freedoms. And when you have a certain amount of people demanding freedoms... I would make the argument that the only way to create those freedoms is by allowing some form of democratic process so that people can make decisions based on to make decisions on their own lives rather than being dictated to about how they should live their lives. Yes, but at that time remember that there was still a strong uh, aristocratic order that controlled a lot of the wealth and oh, yeah. for people who who were coming to terms with this newfound democratic freedom they were much of the new middle class were being were concerned with the fact that they didn't have access to such vast resources. And so they used the narrative of democratic freedom um, and, un and unrepresentation or misrepresentation by their rulers to start demanding an overhaul of the system, to start demanding a new type of democracy that I think we as, uh, as modernists are, are, are familiar with, that it should be ruled for the people. So we see a populist uprising, and many people, especially of our generation, would associate the, this type of democracy with true democracy. Mm. And we often get the notion that what happened in France with the French Revolution, that that is what ultimately needs to happen in order for every individual to be free. Mm. But you know, as, as you well know, you know, that's not the best way to go about it. Yeah, well, let's, so, I mean, let's jump over to the other side of Europe. And I think it's like we, we're going to spend a very short amount of time in France because that's exactly what you say. You know, we think that we need this revolution, but the French Revolution, Yes, highly important historical event, but did not lead to a democratic movement in France. In fact, it led to another dictatorship led by Napoleon and his the eventual creation of the French Empire. In fact, the greatest democratic movement in Europe at the time after the Renaissance took place in England, where there wasn't a democratic revolution, but a slow devolution of power to 
uh, different groups of people within the country. Yes, and that's not because you know that's not entirely the fault of of direct democracy. It was a certain anarchistic populism, you know, that destroyed all forms of power in France yeah. and ultimately left a vacuum yeah. in the country, which was ripe for the picking by some sort of dictator yeah. like Napoleon. But it's that's not to uh, throw the principles of democracy out the window. It's just to realize. The, the tenuous um, relationship with the, the balancing act between direct democracy and representative democracy that with the size of the states that were, that were growing in Europe at that time, it was difficult to allow so many people to rule. Mm. It, was going to, it was not going to be very pragmatic. And so we, there was a swing back to representative styles of democracy that uh, eventually came up and, and, and was well established for the first time in Britain. Yeah during the 1600s, where we had a parliamentary style of democracy um, being established on, on old principles of, um, it was of ownership that mm. was set out in the Magna Carta back, what, 600 years before that. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, let's see, that's actually really interesting. And I think, uh, guys, if you want to watch some TV series on this, like The Tudors is really good. Uh, it shows a bit of this like antagonism going on. Um and just like any kind of period piece on what, what was going on in England at the time, and England actually started this process in 1066, which was the Battle of Hastings, when the Norman conquerors invaded England. And when the Norman conquerors invaded England, King uh, William the Conqueror basically took over and he was like, right, I'm the king, fuck you guys, I own this place. But three generations after him, King John, uh, who was his great-grandson, was very autocratic. But the nice thing about England, and England's actually very lucky because it's an island, it doesn't get conquered very often. In fact, England has only been conquered once, and that was by the Normans. Um, so because of that, it allowed for a growth of development. It allowed for you know good farming. It allowed for quite a lot of wealth to be distributed. And they developed a feudal system where the lords and ladies gained quite a lot of wealth and power. But once you have lords and ladies with wealth and power, they start to get pissed off with the fucking king coming around all the time and taking their shirts, <laughs> which is what King John was doing. For those of you who don't know, King John is the King John in um, the Robin Hood myth. Uh, that's the King John we're talking about. So he was actually running around just taking people's shirts, which people were not happy with. So the lords and the ladies got together and they were like, okay, fuck this shit. We are not going to allow King John to do this. And they wrote a document, which is one of the most important documents in human history called the Magna Carta. And it actually features, it actually features, the Magna Carta, like you said, it actually features in the, the Robin Hood film yeah. by Ridley Scott mm. with Russell Crowe. Um, I think it was made in 2011. Yeah. And like, and that, the story actually centers around that, that piece of where you have, where you have a, a English Robin Hood with the thickest American accent of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Russell Crowe is Australian, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He is Australian. Um, so the Magna Carta laid out two very important things. One was habeas corpus, which stopped the king from arbitrarily arresting people. And the other thing was property rights, making it so the king could not arbitrarily take property from any from anybody, basically. Now, at the first time, this only, but the other thing it set up was a group of people who could make laws that governed the country that were not just made by the king. So for the first time, you had the creation of a parliament and different boroughs in England, which would basically what you would call counties or provinces or whatever you want to call them elected representatives to what is now called the House of Lords, um, which would eventually split up into the House of Lords and the House of Commons in England. But 
they could now make laws that were independent from the king and that the king himself was subject to. So for one of the first times in human history, you have the king being subject to the rule of law, which is obviously one of the most important things in a democratic movement. And this was one of the truest forms of a representative parliamentary democracy. Um, and it's kind of become the benchmark for democratic pro uh, processes around the world. And yes, in many ways it has, because it's within that house, within the, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, within Westminster Abbey, you have um, what is essentially a microcosm of the political actors within the state. In mm. this case, it's Britain. Mm. Um, so everyone, all the the members of parliament present in that house all considered to be representatives of the citizens of Britain and thus the decisions that they make as a, as representatives are, are binding on the entire country and in all uh, and all all the country's citizens at large yeah so that was such, that became it was such a powerful principle because it allowed it balanced both pragmatism of governing large bodies of people effectively with the principle of being of 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 demos of being for the people, mm. um, so it could rein in uh, sovereign power like uh, kingly or um, uh, royal rule, mm. uh, but at the same time still get things done fairly efficiently. Although I know many people would argue against me, I think Robert Mugabe thinks <laughs> he does stuff really efficiently without his democratic populace. Yeah, but uh, but this this set the standard for the. And it was spread for to to other colonies of Britain when they were constructing their empire, mm. and most notably when they took it to or when they introduced the idea in the in the United States, um, that became you know that such such a powerful idea that it stuck around there. It actually it hung on and it was mutated and and you know warped and uh, customized for the American people because they obviously saw things differently. They didn't necessarily believe. That, uh, that the, that the head of parliament should be a prime minister that rules the country, for example, that their head of state wasn't going to be a king or a queen. In fact, it was the very idea of, uh, royalty that they were that, fighting against. That ignited, that ignited the, the war of independence in the first place. Mm. Uh, so they, so the presidential system in the America is set up so that their head of state is not the king of England or the queen of England. It is their own elected president, and uh, and so while they still maintain many principles beholden to democracy in the British sense, they um, they constructed a, their own form by allowing the representation of the people in in multiple forms. Mm. It was in the form it's in the form of the, of the Senate. So you've got the House of the Senate, you've got the House of Representatives in Congress, mm. uh, and and you've got governors of the states, you've got you know mayors of the city. And all of these are elected. All of these positions are elected by the people of America mm -hmm. and by the and by the citizens of each individual state. Plus, in a separate race, what what we're seeing now between Donald Trump, uh, the Republican representatives, and Democrats, is that uh, the president is elected directly. Uh, so that's the essential difference between the parliamentary system in Britain and the presidential system in the United States. But despite those differences in electing the representatives. The principles are still the same, that there are a small group of people who make decisions for the country at large based on the principles of representation and democracy yeah. that, uh, that, 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 hold, um, that hold many similarities between those countries. Yeah. And this is, before we move on, this is something that really gets to me in popular culture. So obviously, you know, I understand that movies are movies and they're entertainment, but 
I think that movies have spread a very damaging viewpoint of democracy. Democracy, in my view, is not necessarily such a great system because it creates something called the tyranny of the majority. When we in America, it's you know fifty one percent of the population uh, they can they can overrule forty nine percent of the population. Uh, in England, you have the first po- first past the post system, which means that you can have a situation where an actual minority wins power. Uh, we have the same thing in South Africa. Like so, for instance, in South Africa, the reason that the apartheid government came into being was because of the way that the National Party won the election in nineteen forty eight. But they actually won a minority of seats. They just happened to win them in the right provinces. So they gained power. Now, movies have shown us that democracy and freedom are two things that are inextricably linked, that you can't have freedom without democracy, which is not necessarily the case. Freedom and democracy are not the same thing. You can have a democratic government that is incredibly autocratic, that is incredibly dictatorial, that in fact limits the freedom of its citizens if the majority of that population decides to do so. So, for instance, take a look at some of the African states where I think that you would find many of the gay citizens in that country find themselves to not be free at all, even though they live in a democratic state. So when you see things in movies where they say like, oh, this is democracy and it's absolutely necessary um, and that we're fighting just for the sake of democracy – that's not necessarily the case. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting quote by Winston Churchill where he said, democracy is the worst system of governance that any, you know, human beings have come up with, except for all the others. So it's not great, but it's the best we've got at the moment. Um, I, though I, we, I think we should talk about illiberal democracies and types of authoritarian rule in another episode, it does. The, the authoritarian types of democracy do illustrate how far removed the body of representatives in a democratic system can become from the people. Yeah. We could start looking like an oligarchy again, such as the Roman Senate, where the representatives start ruling for themselves and their factions alone, rather than being wholly representative to the people at large or their constituency. And a significant pushback against this style is the uh, emphasis that's being placed uh, now on participatory forms of democracy mm. that brings in the lay citizen again. Yeah. We see more and more seats being in parliaments being um, made for uh, independent representatives. So representatives who do not sit with a particular political party, they just sit as an independent individual mm. and they are represented and they are voted in there you know, because many people support them, but they don't, um, they don't stand with the flag. They don't have a banner. They don't have an agenda. They just, people just believe that their ideas are good and wholesome and because of this idea that people can represent other people um respectfully and truly we see we see this this push for participatory democracy Mm. that involves citizens to a greater extent than than representatives have been doing Mm. so it's it's essentially it's it's saying we're prepared to make the sacrifice of quick and easy, quick and efficient um, decision making, because we find that that type of decision making doesn't benefit the people at large. Yeah, we think that it should be talked about a bit more. We think that people should participate. That citizens should be involved in in political decision making to a greater extent. Um, and so we should have that. That's a better ideal at this stage um, in our political systems. Mm. However, it 
that's a great ideal. Many people, you know, politicians struggle to argue against that. Um, it's a, it's a very strong and powerful idea, but how do you do it? It always comes down to the means of implementation. Mm. And this is where I think we should start projecting into the future of how perhaps we could uh, be heading back to forms of direct democracy where people are involved and engaged with um, universally. Yeah. Um, because because of the growth in technological advances, in, te- in technology, mm. there are going to be means of technology that allow people to engage politically with both um, an- anonymity mm. um, and autonomy. So people don't have to be uh, supporting a particular party if they would like to contribute. They mm. can simply he- have their voices heard and voice the concern with, I don't know, the means of some political application on your on your smartphone, something yeah. stupid. And that's, I mean, I think that, you know, this ties into what I said earlier, where, you know, uh, the growth of democracy is tied very heavily to progress and technological advancement. And I, I think we're already seeing this. You know, you're already seeing things in Switzerland, for instance. Now, Switzerland is a very interesting example because it's a very small population, very wealthy population, and a very highly educated population. So... It obviously is not representative of the whole world, but they have what's called a referendum system, which is, uh, you know, essentially a form of representative direct democracy, where citizens can actually vote directly on policy. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that they do it through, uh, you know, almost like an ATM system, where they they can go to voting booths around the country, register themselves, and then vote yay or nay on specific policy objectives or specific things that are currently on the floor of their parliament. And that way, each citizen has a direct influence on the way that policy is carried out. And that technology is available. We have it today. I mean, I think you raise an interesting point. You know, like in Australia, everybody has a smartphone. Everybody, if there was an application where you had, you know, a list of the policies that are on the floor of the of the senate or on the floor of any house of representatives and you could say like yes i agree with this no i disagree with this or i'm going to abstain because it doesn't affect me you know that's very interesting but of course it raises the questions of like who is still you still don't have any influence on actually raising policy on the floor uh, well, this is where you need to talk about the the means of governing that are available to the citizens in a direct democracy. You have the referendum, the initiative, and the recall, which are there for different purposes. So, while we while it's good to emphasize the the idea of participatory democracy, it's it's also fun to play around with which of these forms of rule or which of these acts would be best suited for technological participation. Yeah. So, the referendum is the is um legislation that is put out to the people to have their say yes or no on. Mm. So it's it's it legislation has been developed within Parliament or within the House of Representatives and they would like greater in input on it. Um just in the form of should this pass or should it not. We've seen it um you know with the you know, famous Scottish referendum two thousand fourteen. Yeah. This year we'll see the referendum on Brexit. Um so it's it's the response by citizens to legislation. Their initiative is where it gets interesting mm. because the initiative is where lay people construct their own policy. They, um, one form of this is a, or very, um, superficial form of this is the, um, the petition. Mm. We say this, such and such a thing is a good idea or such and such a thing is a bad idea. And we would like the following policy to be implemented in order to restore justice or in order to deal with this problem. Mm. 
Um, and that is submitted by an independent to the House of Representatives. So the initiative, I think, will be more complicated in future or um, types of electronic direct democracy because it would be difficult to, one, share that body of information, collate um, a representative body of information, and submit that information uh, to a House of Representatives safely and securely without it being hijacked yeah. at some point. The third part is the recall, and that's when a representative is no longer considered fit for, for rule or fit for representation. And so the people can, initi can initiate a recall whereby that representative is taken out of, out mm. of their seat, essentially. Mm. Um, I think that the first two, that the referendum and the recall, because of their more simplistic nature, is more suited to technology, whereas the initiative might is definitely more complicated and that's, you know, it'll probably take a lot longer for that to be implemented mm. electronically. However, the real issue here, I think that is going to, that will add to the debate of whether, of how to implement more, a more participatory style of democracy is the, the threat of security, the security concerns surrounding, um, interaction over digital networks yeah, and uh, digital yeah. fora because you know like like you mentioned in the beginning the agora was the place the physical place where one could go and share one's ideas in ancient in ancient greece but since that agora is now going to be a digital forum it's open to that there are, the, the, yes that there are means of hacking that there are we know that there are means of taking down um posts that there are that there are means of um hijacking uh profiles mm. Um, submitting false ideas. Um, there's, you know, identity fraud. People could be voting multiple times. Mm. People could have their votes manipulated with. People could invent um, uh, citizens' votes. And an organization so, such as Anonymous, while yeah. you know they think that they're doing the best, could have a very direct impact on this form of democracy. Yes. Um, so that concern oh, shit, is going to take down this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on, Anonymous. Um, <laughs> We think you're the next Skynet. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that. Um, and I, I just like there's one other thing uh, before we end that I'd like to you know maybe get you to think about and, and get the listeners to think about as well is the initiative kind of brings concerns into my brain in that you know like average citizens putting a policy ideas forward and like you know and then if that was open to a referendum that concerns me because. If we think about, for instance, let's let's think about something that's very moral, like a bunch of liberals get together and they say there is no reason that all drugs should not be made legal. Like, yes, liberally, there's no reason for that. But that policy comes with huge economic and other, you know, other ethical implications that can have a massive effect on society that need to be looked at from a very technocratic method. You need doctors involved. You need you know, once if you were to put the kind of policy decision making into the hands of, you know, the, the people, I would be very scared of, of the outcomes of what that could cause. And I know I completely I, I don't want to say yeah. that, you know, like everybody's an idiot and they shouldn't be able to have a say, but we do live in a very, very technical and complicated world. I wouldn't like to see the mass of people having decision making capacity all the time. I mean, I wouldn't want to make decisions based on the, the macro economy, but that's because I know I know what I don't know. But I also think yeah. that there are a lot of people who don't realize what they don't know, who think that their opinion is valid, when maybe it's not as valid as some other people. Yes, I agree with you. I would like to end by, by stipulating that the, the big problem with direct democracy is the fact that it involves all the people. 
Yeah. And, 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 and the, the strong influence of majoritarian rule is a legitimate concern that even Aristotle raised. He was scared that if, the, if every single person was allowed to contribute their thoughts, not only would it take very long, but even if you had the means as we do now, the digital means of overcoming the length of time it would take to make decisions, it would also mean that you would have to contend with many shit ideas. Yeah, yeah. And that is not just a waste of time, but it's also it, it'll it'll pass it, because of our emphasis on the majority would rule. If if an ever if 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 most people thought that a cuck idea was a good idea, then we'd be ruled by a lot of cuck ideas. Yeah, and it also raises um, a lot of scope for intervention by very smart but maybe ethically dubious politicians who could manipulate those people. Such as Donald Trump. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but that's, I think, I think that that is a point that's very much open for debate. I'd love to hear something back from our listeners um, about what they think about that. You know, if they want to shout at us for calling everybody an idiot, or maybe they agree with us. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you do, then I think your idea is shit and you're part of the majority. <laughs> Guys, the song we used in this episode is from the movie Gladiator. Um, it's from the original soundtrack to the 2000 film. Uh, the original score and songs were composed by Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerard. Uh, were released in 2000. Were performed by the Lindhurst Orchestra, which was conducted by Gavin Greenway. Um, as far as I understand it, all of them are owned by the studio. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. Please go to the website, landsofleviathan.com, for more content, such as other episodes, as well as written articles. You can also listen to the podcast directly on the Acast app and iTunes or other podcast apps as well as YouTube. We would love your comments and feedback, so please send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N at gmail.com. Or you can contact us on Facebook as well as Twitter by the same name, the Lands of Leviathan Podcast. You can follow us on those networks as well. Plus, we have an RSS and email subscription service on the website. Remember to like, subscribe, and share, guys. Thanks so much.